If you would, let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So uh, grab your Bibles, your smartphones, your tablets, or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's Word. And would you meet me as you guessed in the Gospel of Mark? Uh, again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 17 this morning. As always, if you don't have a Bible, I would very much encourage you and invite you to have God's Word right there in front of you so you have the opportunity to see what it says for yourself. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a couple of ways you could do that. You could just uh, pull out a uh, smartphone and Google Mark 2 ESV and it'll pop right up. Uh, or if you'd prefer a, an old-fashioned paper Bible, uh, there's a rack of Bibles in the back of the room uh, back there that you could make use of. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at all, we would love for you to just uh, take that and keep it as our gift to you, make it your own, use it uh, in your daily life. But let me pray for us as we uh, get ready to get into God's Word together this morning. Father, we are grateful for your great name, that we are able to worship together. We're thankful for who you are, grateful for who you are, and worship you for who you are, Father. As we come to your word now, we believe that every single word of it is inerrant and inspired by your Holy Spirit and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and training in righteousness. So we ask in this moment that your spirit would be very present among us, that it would be moving among us to challenge us, to encourage us, to equip us, ultimately to make us look more like your son, Jesus. Father, and it's my prayer along with David that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. It's in his precious name. Amen. Well, since we talked about uh, NFL draft busts a few weeks ago, I thought I would take the opportunity this morning to introduce you to the concept of NFL contract holdouts. And in case you were interested in that, a, a contract holdout is basically a, a negotiating tactic that uh, some high-profile athletes use to get what they want out of their next contract. In the context of the NFL, it's usually a, a new draft pick that had a, a very successful career in college, and, and he has a particular dollar amount that he wants once he's been drafted, that he wants out of his first NFL contract. For instance, there's Jamarcus Russell. Maybe you recognize that name from a couple of weeks ago when I talked about him as one of the biggest busts in NFL draft history. Well, unfortunately for him, not only is he one of the biggest busts in the NFL draft history, he's also a part of one of the biggest contract holdouts in NFL history. When he was drafted by the Oakland Raiders in uh, 2007 as the first overall pick, he decided that he wanted nothing to do with the Oakland Raiders until they were willing to give him what he wanted out of his first contract. And so he decided he, he, would, he would not participate at all. He skipped all of the off-season and the preseason workouts. He skipped all four of their preseason ex exhibition games. He even skipped the first regular season game in what would have been his long-awaited NFL debut, all in hopes that they would eventually cave and give him what he wanted, that six-year, $68 million contract. See, quite simply, he was more than able to play in the NFL, but he certainly was not willing, at least until he got what he wanted. Much like that, Michael Crabtree was a wide receiver who had a very similar story. He was drafted 10th overall in the 2009 NFL draft by the San Francisco 49ers, and, and like Jamarcus Russell, he was not willing to participate and take his talents to the field until they were to give him what he wanted, also a six-year contract. So he skipped all of the off-season preseason workouts. He skipped all four of the preseason exhibition games. He even skipped the first four regular season games. And the rumor had it at the time that he was willing to skip the entire season until they were going to give him what he wanted. 
Again, like Jamarcus Russell, he was able to take his talents to the field, but he certainly was not willing. Now, sports fans like myself hear hear stories like that. We see that on ESPN, and and aside from the general reaction of, like, really, how much money do you need to play a game as your career, aside from reactions like that, sports fans like myself are like, well, you know, I, I like football, you know, uh, certainly I wouldn't be as good as they would be, but if my favorite team really needs some help, I'm, I'm more than willing to uh, go out there and take my chances at, at dodging those massive defensive linemen that are ready to uh, crush me like a cockroach, and I'm willing to, to throw the ball to whoever's open. And again, I'm sure I'm not going to be as good as they are, but, but at least I'm willing. And so I, I hope that you would be perceptive enough to know that my chances of playing in the NFL uh, are not exactly... Great, so I'll admit it, uh, unlike Jamarcus Russell and Michael Crabtree, who were able but not willing, at least sports fans like myself, we could say we're willing, but we're just not able. But the key for a successful anything is to get people who are both willing and able. Because one without the other doesn't work. It has to be both. The same is true when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins, because let's just be right up front here. We, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot forgive our own sins. In order to be forgiven of our sin, sins, we need someone who is both able and willing. Enter Jesus Christ. So as we look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17 this morning, here's our, our big idea, our one-sentence overarching theme of this passage that will tie it together for us. Our big idea this morning is quite simply, Jesus is able and willing to save you from your sins. Again, Jesus is able and willing to save you from your sins. Like we just said, it's very possible to be able but not willing, and it's also possible to be willing but not able. But when it comes to the forgiveness of sins, Jesus is both able and willing. And we're going to look at both his ability and his willingness this morning in Mark chapter 2. So first, let's look at his ability. Number one, we see in this passage that Jesus is able to forgive your sins. That Jesus is able to forgive your sins. If you would, grab your Bibles and look with me at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark says this, And when he, that's Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, at the end of the last chapter, after Jesus had healed the leper in chapter 1, he told that leper, listen, do not go out and tell anyone what happened. See, Jesus had been having a problem with the crowds that were flocking to him and, and really prohibiting his ministry. So he told the leper, don't tell anyone uh, but that leper did not listen, to say the least. He went out and he, 
He tweeted it. He put it on Facebook. He probably put flyers on telephone poles. He probably even rented a, 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 a billboard on the Capernaum Highway. And so this problem with the crowds even gets worse. And so at the end of chapter 1, Jesus leaves Capernaum, goes out into the middle of nowhere to get away from the crowds. And now as we enter chapter 2, some, uh, some time has passed and Jesus is ready to come back to Capernaum. Maybe he tried uh, putting on a disguise. Maybe he tried sneaking in at night. However he did it, he, he made it back unnoticed, at least at first. He made it back to Simon and Andrew's house where he'd been, he'd been staying and he'd been laying low. But then it was reported that he was at home. Like, like breaking news on all of the, the major news channels, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. And really, why wouldn't this be breaking news? Why wouldn't all of the people that were aware of what he had been doing want to come and see this incredible teacher and healer and, and, and exorcist? Why wouldn't they want to come back? Why wouldn't this be worthy of being breaking news? Like, I can just imagine the chaos happening here. Like, when we see a celebrity suddenly spotted in public, and we've seen these, these scenes before where there's screaming fans just flocking to try to get to him, and we see the, the, the flashes of cell phone cameras going off trying to get a picture. I, I feel like that's what would have been happening here if this was today. And already at the beginning of verse 2, it says, And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. The crowds were back, that this place is packed. Forget social distancing, forget fire codes, forget all of that stuff. This, this place is packed and spilling out into the streets. And the craziest thing happens because as Jesus is in the middle of this room, teaching them God's word, preaching to them, all of a sudden as he's teaching, like some dirt and some sticks like start falling from the ceiling. And he looks up because somebody is literally on the roof, digging a hole through the roof to try to get to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can think back to uh, my childhood growing up in, uh, in Sunday school and seeing the flannel graph pictures of this story uh, where it's this, this nice, neat scene and everyone's just gathered around and, and there's this nice, clean hole being cut in the roof and, and everyone's just peaceful. I, I have a feeling that's not what was actually happening here. I feel like this was probably chaos. Like imagine this morning if we're sitting here and uh, I don't know what it would actually take to get through this roof, but imagine we're sitting here and we, we hear a chainsaw or a jackhammer or something fire up, and all of a sudden there's a hole opening up there. This would, this would be chaos for us. Like, this is not cool. We're kind of doing something right now. But what's happening here is that four friends are doing whatever they can to get their friend to Jesus. We know the story. This is one of the most familiar stories of Jesus' ministry. And we, we know what he's about to do here, but so before we get there, kind of stop here and draw some application for us from what we see these four friends doing. How many of us here have unsaved friends or family members that we want to get to Jesus? How many of us, somebody pops in our head and, and we think about that person and, and we're like, my heart breaks when I think for that, of that person. Because I know the reality of their relationship with God. I know they're, they're lost. I know what's going to happen if they were to die without Christ. And I just, I wish I could do anything I could to get this person to Jesus. Well, we can look at these four friends and we can draw some lessons and pull some application out here. So let's do that and look at five lessons for getting someone to Jesus. First, to get someone to Jesus, have a genuine concern for the lost. See, it's, possible, it's probably safe to say that this crippled man had been crippled for quite some time. I want us to notice that these men never lost their compassion. They never lost their concern for their friend. How often when there's a tragedy or a need do we uh, instantly try to meet that need? We, we're, we're burdened. We have concern for our friend that's in a time of need. But as, as time goes by, do we ever lose that concern? 
eventually, if this wasn't today, how many of us would eventually be like, well, that's just Stan, you know, he, he was in an accident years ago. It's, it was really sad. We, we helped him out at the time, but he's okay now. Like, this is, he just realized this is, this is life for him. See, over time, sometimes we lose our concern for what's actually going on here. We grow numb to the need. So how often, when it comes to our lost friends, do we do the same thing? Like at first we meet these people, we're passionate about getting the gospel to them. We, we understand the reality of their lostness and, and we, we want them to come to Jesus. We want them to, to do that. But over time, how often do we just lose our concern? And eventually it just gets down to being like, well, you know, that's, that's Stan. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for years. Great guy, nice guy. I've tried to talk to him about Jesus, but you know, church really isn't his thing. So he's fine. He's, he's a good guy. So over time we lose our concern for the lost. Second, have faith that Jesus can save. These, these four men's confidence for their friend to walk again wasn't in themselves or in their concern or their, their friendship with him. It wasn't in their, their ability to maybe do some rehab with him. It, it, was in, it was not in what they could do for him. It was what Jesus could do for them. And just like that, your confidence for your lost friends to be saved should never be in your friendship or your love for them or, if, or in your apologetic prowess or your evangelistic fervor, but in the saving power of Jesus Christ alone. Like your faith that Jesus can save that person, can speak volumes to that person about the, about the power of the gospel. But how often then do we drown out the power of the gospel when we make ourselves the center of our evangelism instead of making Jesus the center of our evangelism? So have a big faith that Jesus can still save people, that Jesus can save the person that you're burdened for no matter how hopeless that situation might be. But third, don't just pray, do something. Like these men didn't just say, well, let's keep Stan on our prayer list. He, he, he can't walk here. They, they said, let's get Stan on this stretcher and let's get him to Jesus. Let's get him where he needs to go. So yes, pray for the lost. Absolutely pray for the lost. But sometimes God will use you as the answer to your prayers. So don't just pray for the lost, share the gospel with them. Take them out to lunch. Have a conversation about Jesus with them. Love them. Be concerned for them. Invite them to church. Do a Bible study with them. and Anything like that. But don't just pray. Do something. And then number four, don't just do something. Be persistent. I'm going to go out on a limb here and just assume that it's safe to say that this story probably would not have made it in the Bible if, if these four friends decided to take their friend to Jesus and they, they showed up at this house in Capernaum that day. And they saw the crowds and their reaction was like, Oh, well, we, at least we tried. Or, or they, they asked a few people at the back of the, back of the crowd and, and said, hey, we, we really got to get this friend to Jesus. Can, can you let us at the front of the line? And those people were like, no, you get back in the back of the line. You, we're waiting our turn too. I have a feeling this wouldn't have made it in the Bible if they just quit and went home. But they didn't. They were persistent. They went so far as to, to get through the crowd, to get up on the roof. And then the, the, the Greek literally says here, they unroofed the roof. Like that's a big deal. Like they were persistent. This is not just cutting that neat hole. They unroofed the roof. They were trying to get their friend to Jesus and going to great lengths. So what great lengths are you going to to get your friend to Jesus? Let's be clear. Don't be rude. Don't be offensive. Don't, don't be that guy that's just shoving Jesus down people's throats. Uh, I like to say, if, if you can't pick the fruit, don't bruise it. But absolutely be lovingly persistent. Absolutely keep bringing up Jesus, having a conversation about Jesus, talking about what Jesus is doing in your own life. But then fifth, don't presume upon Jesus for results. Again, imagine this scene. They've 
ripped the roof off of somebody's house, and they've lowered their friend down to Jesus. And at this point, they've done all that they can do, and it's in Jesus' hands now. At this point, it's in Jesus' hands and what he's going to do with them. They, they can't be up on the roof yelling down to Jesus like, come on, Jesus, you owe us. Like, look at everything we did here, so do this for us. Like, you owe us at this point. We've taken all the steps, now you do your part. No, they, they, they couldn't do that. They, they lowered their friend to Jesus. And they put him in Jesus' hands and they trusted Jesus with him. We must do the same with our lost friends. But look, this man's in good hands. Jesus looks at the situation, he sees their faith, and he says to the lame man, Son, your sins are forgiven. We read that, and we're like, that's awesome news. Like, this guy just got saved. This is, this is awesome, and that, that's true. But, but just put yourself in the, the shoes of this crippled man for a second. You haven't walked in years. Your friends have, uh, have, have tried to get you help, and they get you to your help, and your help looks at you and says, Yeah, forget your legs. Uh, your sins are forgiven. How many of us would be like, that's not, why I, that's not why I'm here? It would be like if you went to your, your doctor because you knew you were sick, you needed help, and, and you were waiting in the exam room, and the doctor walks in and says, hey, hey, it's, it's good to see you. Guess what? Your mortgage is forgiven. Like, your reaction would probably be, well, thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That's, that's good news. But first of all, that's not why I came. And, and second of all, can you, can you even do that? Like, do you have the authority to do that? I think that's what's going on here. But the thing is that Jesus knew that this man's biggest problem was not his need for new legs. It was for his sins to be forgiven. And so he moves from the surface level to go deeper than this man ever thought he needed Jesus to go. I mean, this man coming to Jesus probably thought, like, just fix my legs and I'll be good. Like, just, just fix my legs. I'll be happy again. I will never complain again. Nothing will, my, my life will be perfect and I'll be able to get a job. I'll be able to support my family. I'll be able to play with my kids, run again. Jesus, just fix my legs and, and my life's going to be great again. But see, Jesus knew that new legs would never satisfy this man. Jesus knows our hearts well too, far too well for that. Jesus knew that if he would have just fixed the man's legs and sent him on his way, uh, then like two months from this story, the guy would have stubbed his toe on something, and the next thing out of his mouth would have been like, that kind of stuff never happened when I couldn't walk, so, so why am I here now? So Jesus went past the surface level, went to the heart, and he deals with this man's biggest need, his need for forgiveness, because listen, Jesus himself is the only thing that will ever satisfy you. No matter what you think you need, if it's not Jesus, it will not satisfy you. New legs cannot satisfy a crippled man. A new spouse will not fix the problems in your marriage. A new job, a new, a new boss, a new house, a new, a new gadgets will never fix your, your issues with being satisfied in Jesus. But we're forgetting that there's still a crowd watching all of this, and of course that crowd included some of the scribes, the religious leaders who were always out to, to get Jesus. And really, this is their first clash. This is the first time they really have a, a run-in with each other. And they're watching this, and they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they don't say anything, but they're about to erupt inside. That's clear in the text. Like, they're, they're not okay with what's going on here. Like, who does he think he is? Like, you can't say stuff like that. That's blasphemy. You, you don't have the authority to forgive sins, Jesus. And and I love this. Um, Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he just calls them out on it, like, right away. And I, just, I love this. He's, let, me, let me ask you a question. 
Like, clearly, you're not on board with what's going on here in this passage. Clearly, you've got a problem with this. So um, let me ask you this question. Which would be easier for me to say? Would it be easier for me to say your, your sins are forgiven? Or would it be easier for me to tell this crippled man to get up and, and walk? And there's silence, and I can kind of imagine the wheels turning in their head of, well, how do we answer this question? I mean, if he says his sins are forgiven, we can't really see that happening. Um, but if, we, if he says, you get up and walk, if that could really happen, I guess we could see that. But, but Jesus doesn't wait for an answer. He says, I'll tell you what, since I'm the Son of Man, and that's a, it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7, just so you can see for yourself that I have the authority and, listen, the ability to forgive sins, he turns to that crippled man and he says, get up. Pick up your bed. Walk. Go home. And he does. This was like the, the mic drop moment where everyone's bottom jaw like hits the floor and, and, and it says they were amazed and glorified God. They worshipped. Why? Because Jesus has the ability to forgive sins. He is able to forgive your sins. That's, that's why he did this miracle, to, to prove, no, I actually, I actually can. I actually do have the ability to forgive sins. And so the next question then, is he willing? course we see he's willing here, but then in our minds we're like, but is he really willing? Is he, is he willing for us? Is he willing for everybody? Mark gives us the answer to that question next, because number two this morning, yes, Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. Number two, Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. Look back with me at Mark chapter two. The scene's going to shift a little bit here. So verses 13 through 17 says this, and he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, this scene shifts away from the house and back out for a walk along the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And, and Jesus is walking and teaching. This crowd is following him as usual. And he's walking and teaching and stopping and walking and teaching. And at some point along the way, he, he comes across another man that he's going to call to be one of his disciples. And let me just say, this, this call, this one was a big deal. Not that the other ones weren't, but this, this culturally was a big deal. So let's get to know this new disciple just a little bit. We were told his name is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And so what do we know about him? Well, we're not 100% certain, but we're like 99% certain that this man was also known as Matthew, as in the guy that wrote the Gospel of Matthew, that, that disciple. That's, that's who this is. But it, the big deal here is not exactly what his name was. It's what he did for a living. See, Levi was a tax collector. Now, I know that none of us, it's, first of all, it's, it's tax season. Uh, and I know that none of us, uh, are really fans of the IRS. None of us appreciate paying our taxes. We, but it would not be fair for us to compare the IRS to the tax collectors in Jesus' day. Like we, we joke about the IRS being a bunch of crooks, but, but these people, these tax collectors, were really a bunch of, of crooks. They were hated. 
Obviously, again, nobody likes paying taxes, but this goes even further than that. See, people were, like Levi, were viewed as traitors in their context. They were viewed as people that were working alongside the, the oppressive Roman government to occupy their land, and, and they're cooperating with them. So, so obviously, tax collectors are not well-liked. On top of that, tax collectors in their day didn't just take the flat tax and, and do their job. No, they were basically allowed and, and often did a little bit of extortion and figured out exactly how much that person really had the ability to pay. And, and then they would just charge them extra and just skim it off the top and, and keep it for themselves. So these are not great people. And on top of that, the fact that Levi's booth was by the Sea of Galilee probably tells us that, that part of his job specifically was to tax the, the fishermen that, that were coming in off of the Sea of Galilee with their catch of the day to, 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 to provide for their families. So let's just stop and think about that for a second. How, how, how well-liked do you think this guy's going to be with Simon and Andrew, James, and John, who are fishermen by living? Like, that's not going to exactly fit in here, but what this is telling us is that Jesus calls people from very different backgrounds. He calls them to unity in Christ, to follow him shows us that it doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what your background is or what you've done. Jesus still loves you. Jesus still wants you. Jesus is still calling you and Jesus will still use you. It shows us that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if that's not clear yet, just look at what happens next because apparently he goes home for lunch with Levi and this was not some private lunch. Verse 15 tells us that he was reclining at the table and there were many tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him. And again, we hear that like great news, like the, the movement is growing, people are getting saved, there's people following Jesus, like this is, this is awesome. But let's just take a step back for a second again. Picture this scene in your mind. Picture Jesus at this table surrounded by the outcasts of their day, the sinners, the tax collectors, uh, dining with Jesus. I want you to take that picture and kind of adapt it a little bit to our culture. Adapt it to 2021. Pull that, pull out here to maybe say downtown Albany in the, in the neighborhood, the part of the city that, that you don't go to. I want you to ask yourself what questions might be running through your mind if you were to peek in that window and see Jesus reclining with the tax collectors and sinners. What questions would you be thinking? Maybe, is Jesus okay here? Is he safe? Is he comfortable? Is, is he really okay here? Is he, is he sure he locked his car before he, after he parked it? Is, is he okay here? Is he, is he touching his wallet and, and cell phone to make sure that he, that he has it? Is he freaking out because of, because of the backgrounds, the, the past, the, the, the language, the things that are going on around him? Is, is he okay here? See, we might be tempted to, to, to pull Jesus out of the room and say, Listen, Jesus, you've got to move your ministry out to the suburbs. Like, it's, it's way better out there. People, people at least somewhat have their lives cleaned up. It'll be a lot easier, but you shouldn't be around these people. That's what we might be tempted to think, and that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees did think. Again, those religious people who were all head but no heart and no hands. In fact, they even pulled Jesus' disciples aside and were like, what does your boss think he's doing? Does he not know that what he's doing right now is really not proper? Like, he shouldn't be hanging around those, those people. Like, this does not look good for him. Apparently, the scribes and the Pharisees hadn't learned their lesson from back in verse 8 when Jesus knew what they were thinking uh, because they said it out loud this time, and, and Jesus still heard them. And he takes this opportunity uh, not just to make it clear to them that, that he's aware of what he's doing, but to tell them, no, I'm doing this on purpose. 
This is why I'm here. Verse 17, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, guys, I didn't come to play church. I came to reach the lost. I know you religious people don't, don't think you need me. At least you don't, you don't think you do because you're trying to be your own savior. But guess what? I came to save these people, the people that you, you view as the outcasts, the, the people, the, the, the sick people. I, I came to reach them doing this on purpose. See, Jesus knew that in order to reach the lost, you have to be with the lost. Let me be very clear because here's what we get. Here's what we kind of get caught up in this sometimes. He didn't say like the lost. He said with the lost. Jesus is being with the lost here. He didn't, he didn't just preach repentance to sinners. He befriended sinners. In other words, he wasn't just able to forgive their sins. He was willing to forgive their sins. He wanted to forgive their sins. This is his heart for people. He was coming to save these people, and he was ready to go wherever he needed to go and do whatever he needed to do to reach these people. Because, friends, Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. R.T. France, one of my favorite commentators, points out that, that really the issue for the, the scribes and Pharisees here in this passage is not so much that Jesus is proclaiming repentance to sinners and inviting people to repent. No, that's not really their problem here. It's that Jesus would go to them, that Jesus would be around them, instead of going with their method of saying, listen, you guys clean yourself up and then come and then, then we'll talk. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. Jesus' heart was to go, to be a friend of sinners. He's both willing and able to forgive people's sins, the people who really needed it. Is that your heart? Let me ask you, how do you view the tax collectors and sinners of our day? See, Jesus saw these people as sinners in need of salvation, not lowlifes in need of condemnation. He saw them as people to be reached, not outcasts to be avoided. And the true test of whether or not you really want to see sinners forgiven is, is found in whether or not you're willing to embrace the uncomfortable and go to them and reach them and be a light to them. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, The Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, they had obviously never read their Hebrew Bibles carefully because from its third chapter onward, it tells the story of the God who receives sinners and eats with them. This is what the annual feasts of the Old Testament calendar were all about, how God receives sinners and eats with them. See, the problem was, though, these scribes and Pharisees, they weren't comfortable with what that looked like in real life, as opposed to the symbolic feasts and things like that. They weren't, they weren't comfortable with God actually dining with sinners, because that's what's happening here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus Christ, God himself, is receiving sinners and eating with them, dining with them, befriending them. You know what? It doesn't end here either because this is a picture pointing forward of what's to come. This is a preview of the marriage supper of the Lamb when, when one day every forgiven sinner of all of history will be gathered around a table to dine for a meal with God himself. And friends, I think we're going to be awfully shocked when we get there and look around us. I think some of us are going to be a little embarrassed to see some of the people sitting around the table near us. We're going to look at them and be like, that's that person I really wasn't willing to talk to that didn't think they were Jesus quality. I think we're going to be embarrassed when it gets there, but you know what? It's going to be, it's going to be awesome because we're all going to bow down and worship this Jesus who was both able and willing 
to save us from our sins. Friends, what an amazing reality that is. He was not just able but not willing. He was not just willing but not able. He was both able and willing. He wants to save you from your sins. So maybe you're here this morning, and your question is, well, how does that happen? How do, how do I get saved? How do I be forgiven of my sins? Maybe you, maybe you identify with Levi and, and the sinners, and you're like, well, I don't, really don't belong in the religious circles. Or maybe you identify more with, more with the, the Pharisees and the scribes and thinking, well, I still need to be saved. This isn't, but this, 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 I don't really think I need a, a Savior. I want you to know that Jesus saved you. He loved, or Jesus loved you so much that he died in your place to save you from your sins. All of us have sinned against the holy God of the universe. All of us, you, me, Levi, the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of us have sinned against the holy God of the universe. And because of that sin, we stand in just need of eternal punishment in hell for our sins. Just like the lame man in this passage couldn't save himself, and just like Levi couldn't clean himself up enough to, to, deserve, to deserve to be in the presence of Jesus and, and these other people, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And trying to be good, trying to make your good outweigh the bad won't save you. Being born into a Christian family won't save you. Fitting in with some religious group won't save you. You needed a perfect sacrifice on your behalf, and that's what Jesus did. That's why Jesus came. Because Jesus Christ, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, temporarily set aside his glory in heaven and came to earth and, and lived the perfect life that you could never live and then, and then went to the cross where he died the, the, the death that you deserved. He, he took on the punishment for your sins on himself. He did it for you. Isaiah 53 gives us a very good description of that long time before Jesus came. And I just want to read it to you this morning. This is what it says Jesus did for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, to crush him. Friends, Jesus did that for you. In your place, he laid down his life for you. He didn't just decide to to let things go, to let your sin slide. No, he he took your sin upon himself and went to the cross to, to take that punishment for you so that you could be saved. That's how much of a friend of sinners Jesus is. And all that he requires of you, all that he asks of you is to repent of your sins and put your faith in him. Salvation is God's free gift of grace for all who will humble themselves and come to him in faith, no matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done. I want to close our time together in God's word this morning with a very clear invitation to respond to the gospel, to come to God through Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. If you're here this morning and you've never once and for all placed your faith in Jesus, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, do it today. Jesus is standing with arms wide open, ready to accept you, willing to accept you, wanting to accept you. He's not going to hold out on you because he's able but not willing, and he's not going to be willing and give it his shot, but, his best shot, but not be able because he's both able and willing to save you from your sins. So as the worship team comes, I'm going to pray for us. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I would just invite you as I pray, talk to God. He'll hear you. He'll save you. Turn from your sins. Tell him you know you're a sinner. Tell him you know you, you've sinned against him. Tell him you know that, that the just punishment for your sins is eternal separation and punishment from him in hell. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for what Jesus did and ask him to save you and he will. Because he's both able and willing to save you from your sins. Let's pray as the worship team comes. Father, we thank you for your son who died for us on the cross. We are so undeserving. We are so in need. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for not just Jesus' ability to save us, but his willingness, his eagerness even to save all who will come to him. Father, I ask this morning specifically, if there's anyone here that you know does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, would you break their hearts for you this morning? Teach them your grace. Draw them to yourself. Have them bow the knee. Ask for the forgiveness of their sins to be saved, Father. You are able and willing. We praise you for that. We praise you for the worship that we're about to give you. In Jesus' name, amen.